0: Our years lend perspective to life's main objective. As we roll past those gardens of stone, our lives are a ride at a quarter time, a dance to be danced on our own. In the meantime, we wait as we bypass the gate. We roll past those gardens of stone in the meantime we wait and we bypass the gate and go whistling past the graveyards alone years flowing quicker our bodies grow thicker and our memories hang like a shroud we sing songs about cars all the ladies and bars and we lie about the one that we know In the meantime we wait and we bypass the gate We roll past those gardens of stone In the meantime we wait and we bypass the gate And go whistling past the graveyards alone
1: Well, welcome to this edition of the Whispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series. I'm your host, Todd, middle initial C, Walker. Yes, that's right, it's me. And we are listening to the song Whistlin Past the Graveyard by my good friend Dave Weiner. It's from his CD, Highway Song, by D.L. Weiner. We're going to have to ask him what the L stands for. With the wood tones, and the wood tones are friends of his who played on the CD. We have Tim McCusker on mandolin. Mickey Steves on lead guitar, Cody Collins on bass, his longtime, longtime duo partner Bob Cass on bass, Chris Hurley on lead guitar, and Steve Hammond on percussion. And I am so pleased to have this alumni of the Frederick Coffee Company Open Mic Series, the Frederick Coffee Company Songwriter, Sunday Songwriter Series, and the Monday Night Songwriter Series at Brewer's Alley on the phone with me. It is Dave Weiner. Dave, how are you doing?
2: Doing very well. Well, I'm uh, enjoying this.
1: Well, good. And just so you can feel like you're performing, you're going to get the, the crowd to applaud you. <laughs> the Wonders of Technology.
2: Yeah, really.
1: Well, that song is one of my favorites. And when did you write that? How long ago?
2: Uh, Well, that would be geez, that's got to be seven or eight years ago. Actually, it came from a slip of paper at a, a uh, open mic that I used to go to in Reister's Town. And uh, they had uh, a slip. They'd take a slip out of the hat every month, and that's what you would write your song or your poem or your haiku, whatever it was. And the slip said death. So that's that's what came out of that slip of paper.
1: So it's kind of like an exercise in a way.
2: Uh yes. Yeah.
1: Now, how many worked Well, for me. Yeah. How many people were at that particular open mic? Do you recall?
2: Uh it was not a big open mic. There there might have been 15, 20, 25 people max cuz it was a small area and actually Uh, Most of the performers and listeners were uh, late teens, early 20s. So obviously, I was the old man in the room all the time.
1: Now, how many people came back the next time with a song?
2: Uh, I would say after I did it there the first time, there was probably an additional uh, 10, 15 people in the the crowd. So, you know, it, it had a response definitely
1: well it made it to a cd that's great
2: well yeah it was i got the idea for the cd i had always wanted to record and uh the fella mickey steves that did some of the lead guitar work on there has a studio and said come on in we'll record it so we you know i went in and we recorded a highway song and uh I learned a lot.
1: (laughs) It's a different style of performing, isn't it?
2: Um, You mean as to working in a studio? Yes, compared to... Yes, uh, it is. Yes. Most definitely. Uh, But I tried to be as true to being in front of an audience as I could. Um, We did a lot of stuff that uh, actually one of the songs on that disc uh called for gene which is a song i wrote for my wife was done in one take in the main room in the studio just tim mccusker uh bob and myself and it was done in one take
1: wow because it does set, it, it's you did a great job on that
2: well it, it's a it's a nice song i had a good time writing that one and that's one of those songs that came from a slip of paper at the uh, open mic. The, the song protein. Pu- yes, because it uh, the slip of paper was uh, broken puzzle pieces, and my wife had been asking me to, you know, when I was going to write her a song, and I finally said, "Oh yeah, I can. This'll work," because uh, I had been putting it off because I, you know, I just didn't feel comfortable. But when I got that slip of paper. I said, I I know what I'm going to do with this. And that's what came out of it.
1: Well, it is a wonderful song. And it's one of the songs that I enjoyed listening to whenever you performed it. So now of all the, there's five cuts on the CD, were they all performed live? Or did you do tracking sometimes where each person would track their instrument and then you'd come back later and sing?
2: Well, we would uh, do some tracking. Typically, uh, what happened uh, other than for gene i would come in and do a track of my voice and my guitar and then uh some other things would be done like for instance on whistling past the graveyard the harmony part is me so that's a second so that's a second track um and uh we would add some of the lead parts later in fact uh mickey steves did a lead part for uh a version of Highway Song, which he did sitting in the control room, playing the <laughs> playing the track back. Uh, he's he's a very talented guy.
1: Now, did you find, or do you, do you find, working in the studio to be an incredible amount of fun, scary, or how would you describe it?
2: Well, uh, the first time I went in, I was nervous. Yeah because I had never been in a studio before. and uh, But it, th- that went away very quickly. I got used to working with a click track and things like that and being able to go back and do harmony parts over top of uh, melody lines. And uh, But for instance, uh, our drummer on that CD, uh, he came in after all the tracks were done And did all the percussion in one take. Wow. Yeah. Steve is very, very talented.
1: Now, how did you go about choosing who was going to be a part of the Woodtones?
2: Well, to be very honest with you, they're all buddies from an open mic that I do over in Ellicott City. Um, Mickey Steves comes in there. Tim McCusker comes in there. Uh, the only one that's not part of that group is Chris. Uh, Chris used to run an uh, open mic up in Westminster, uh, which is how I got started when I came back to playing after a oh geez, 20-year hiatus. And uh, he was very instrumental in getting me started again.
1: Well, that brings up the subject of your, and I refer to it as musical journey. How... When did you start playing guitar, why, and then kind of take us chronologically through the the process?
2: Okay, well, when I was a kid, like elementary school, back in those days, and you probably remember that too, you had orchestral band in every elementary school. I started out as a drummer, and played one year of clarinet, and figured I was going to be a drummer in a band. Um, that didn't work out so well because I found out I couldn't accompany myself. So you know, if I was alone, and I'm a drummer, there's not a whole lot you can you can do that way. So I picked up a real inexpensive guitar that I kind of glommed off a friend and started playing. Uh, learned from uh, Big Note. Uh, monkey songbooks and Beetle songbooks, chord diagrams. I'm not really a educated musician per se, and uh, by the time I was 16, 17, I was out playing coffee houses and that sort of thing. And from there, uh, that's when I heard my first John Prine song back in 1970. Uh, I went to a place called Patches, 15 Below, in Towson. And there was a group there, and they played the song Flag Decal. I was immediately hooked, bought the album the next day, and I've been playing his stuff ever since.
1: Now, would you say that John Prine is probably your large, your biggest musical influence?
2: Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I I truly think he was one of the best writers on the planet. I mean, he had a way with lyrics that just some of the double entendres and all that thing that just were fabulous. And then he'd kill you with a song like uh, Hello in there, you know, which you might not be expecting. I mean, you know, you've been listening to stuff like Everybody or. Your flag decal or illegal smile, and then you hear hello in there, and you just you know if you're not moved by that, you can't be moved by anything. Uh, the other thing with John was he was without a doubt the best storyteller I ever heard, and I've told you my goal in life is to tell a story pre-song as good as any one of his. Uh, Still working on it, but I'm still working on it.
1: (laughs) Now, did you ever get to see him
2: live? Oh, yeah, a number of times. Uh, Saw him in Philadelphia uh, at, uh, I think it was a Firestone Theater, the place was called. Saw him in Baltimore at Pier 6. Saw him at, uh, there's a venue down in Montgomery uh, County, Crystal something or other where we saw him and uh my original time that I saw him was the same time I started playing his music I saw him at the cellar door in DC and his opening rack act was Bonnie Raitt really and the bass player Yep, yeah, and the bass player from electrical Aid orchestra the guy this guy named Freebo. oh yeah and uh it was an incredible show I sat there uh, totally transfixed. I mean, you know, he had his stool and his beer and his pack of cigarettes on uh, a stool next to him, and just tore it up. He was amazing.
1: So he was playing solo at that point, or did he have freebo playing yes, bass was. with him? he was. No,
2: he was. No, he was just him.
1: Now, just him. Was he solo every time you you got the chance to watch him and listen?
2: No, actually. He would. He generally had a guitar player who could also play mandolin and a little bit of fiddle and his uh, bass player, and that was it. And uh, that kind of in- infected the way that I tend to orchestrate things when I do a song, when I record something or when I want to go out and play somewhere, I might ask uh, one other person to come, so I have... A good guitar player and i have a good bass player and then there's me um one of the people that i do that with i i tend to contact a young man by the name of john patton who is very talented player uh also a writer and uh he's kind enough to come out sometimes and do stuff with me
1: now when you were performing back doing coffee houses and you were in your Hmm. fledgling career um, musically. How long duration were your sets?
2: Uh, Typically I would get about a half hour set. That's because they would put other people on as well.
1: Now, did you do, and that's probably about six songs, I guess, five or six songs. Were most of them John Prine songs, or did you write originals back then?
2: Mm, Well, I wrote Two originals back then. One was Highway Song, which is on that disc, and the other one is Didn't Want to Go, which is on that disc. So after that, though, after I wrote those two, I did not write anything until after I started uh, going back out again. Once we had a empty nest, and I just I got interested in trying to write.
1: So now that brings up the next subject or a part of that musical journey. When you said Empty Nest, did music go away for a period of time?
2: Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, I was playing with a band uh, at that time called the Part-Time Band uh, because we believed in truth and advertising. And, uh, you know, I had my son, Derek, and my daughter Lindsay was maybe two or three at the time. And, um, I said, yeah, I need to be home more and I need to be home on weekends. So I basically sold all my equipment and stayed home and helped my lovely wife raise two kids and, uh, didn't play very much. I, you know, every now and again I'd get a guitar out and hit a couple of chords, but, Uh, any kind of structure just didn't exist at that time. What existed was my family.
1: Now, prior to putting the guitar away, had you been playing, Mm -hmm. was music your full-time career, or were you working full-time and then doing the music part-time in the part-time band?
2: Well, very briefly, I mean, when I first came out of high school, uh, I took a trip down into... Uh, Georgia and South Carolina to play at uh, <laughs> Holiday Inns for a while, um, at which didn't go real well. And I'm like, I'm never going to make a living at this. And I said, okay, so I'll just play to play. And I did that for a little while, and then played with the part-time band for a while, and then put it away.
1: Now the was. Were you born in Maryland?
2: Yeah, I, well no. I was born in Camp Pickett, Virginia. Uh-huh. My dad was in the army uh during the Korean War.
1: I'm not sure where Camp Pickett is.
2: Well, neither am I. I had to look it up on a map. It's out there in the woods uh in western Virginia and um it was this I mean it was back in the hills. I remember my mom described it one time going to the hospital, um, and driving these mountain roads and whatnot. And she thought they were going to go off the side, but, uh, they made it to the hospital. She had me and there you have it.
1: Now, were you, did you have brothers and sisters?
2: Yeah, I have a younger brother. My, uh, he's about five years younger than me. My brother, Keith, he is a bass player. He's also a violin player, believe it or not. Uh
0: Uh-huh. Uh,
2: but he's in a current thing where he's, he hasn't played much in a lot of years. Um, he gets together every now and then. His one group, uh, called, um, Two Leg got together for a reunion, uh, concert, which was very cool. Very talented guys. And, um, but he and I never played together. And then there was my younger sister, Lord Lover. Uh, she was a year younger than than me. Um, she passed away fairly young, and uh, I loved her, but she couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, <laughs> which is which is odd. Because and my brother is not a great singer; he can sing a little bit. But my mom had a great voice. She loved singing in the choir.
1: Well, you have what I call, well, I describe you as working man songwriter. the, And you have a somewhat of a kind of gravelly, I guess would be the way I would describe it, vocal. Has it always been that way?
2: Uh, not until I was old enough to drink. <laughs> <laughs> Once I got old enough to drink, it's a mixture of uh, uh, cigarettes and um, Jack Daniels. Well, I don't where that came from.
1: I don't recall ever seeing you with a cigarette.
2: Uh, no, I quit in '96. I got intelligent enough to quit so I wouldn't be smoking around my wife and the kids. And I picked a good time right when uh, we, Gene and I, took the, the kids and uh, planned a trip to Disney World and Daytona Beach for over Thanksgiving. So I put them down the day we got on the airplane and 3 days later had a bout of pneumonia. Oh gosh. Gene had to take me to the uh to a walk-in clinic in Daytona. The only thing I ever saw of Daytona for the 3 days or 4 days we were there was the inside of the hotel room and the roofs of the uh buildings in Daytona Beach as we drove to the uh clinic.
1: So much for the, the vacation, guys, huh?
2: Definitely had, yeah, well, it was. The first three days started out great when we were at Disney World. And then on the fourth day, we got ready to go over to Daytona Beach. I drove about a half hour, and I looked at her and said, I can't drive anymore. I feel awful. Got in the passenger seat, and that was it for the next four days.
1: Oh, gosh. So, <laughs> well, what, yeah. yeah, it happens, unfortunately. Yep. So, what was your career then, outside of music? What was your line of work?
2: Oh, I was in transportation. I ran uh, trucking outfits. I was the guy I told them where to go, when to be there, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Now, your whole career was that?
2: Pretty much. I mean, I when I before I uh, when I was younger, younger, before I got married, I worked. Uh, for a music company. Good old Rosso Brothers Music in Laurel and Glen Burnie and Columbia Mall and uh, I had a partner that uh, we used to go out and play. He made me work harder than anybody else I've ever known. He would just wear me out.
1: From a musical standpoint or from a work standpoint?
2: Oh no, from a work standpoint. And we, uh, he, uh from, from playing musically, he had actually recorded with a group when he was in Middlebury College. Um, and they had a album with Columbia Records. Wow. So this guy could really play. He had huge hands. One of his hands was like both of mine put together, and he was really, really good. So, uh, I was blessed to be able to have him. Uh, make me sound good.
1: I called... Uh, I'm sorry.
2: No, that's okay.
1: I called those hands Jim Jim Croce hands because I have a a, a DVD of uh, different live performances that were done on television with Jim Croce, and I was watching Mm -hmm. him play, and from his forefinger to his pinky, he could go about six frets or maybe even seven, and I'm thinking, my whole hand isn't that long.
2: Right. That sounds like my... Partner Gavin, and when I was in high school, um, I had a partner who had a what I call a peaches and cream voice. Fellow by the name of Steve Diamond, um, and he had a gorgeous voice, self-taught player, could rip it up. Uh, again, I was blessed with a really good partner, and the two of us sounded pretty good together, but. You know, I graduated from high school. The last thing we played together was uh, my wedding. Ah, yeah. He was. He and I were the entertainment at uh, Jeannie and Maya's wedding.
1: So, how did you dance the first dance? If you're the entertainer,
2: well, it didn't have much of a logic behind that, so we just didn't do that.
1: I see. Did you make up for it later?
2: Uh, at times, I used to tell her and it, and it 's still the truth. I never really learned to dance because I was too busy playing mm-hmm. so uh you know uh, and and the reason that I started playing to begin with was girls, you know back when I was in high school, so you know, I kind of worked that way and um, so i didn 't dance very much, and if I do it's slow dances, so i don 't look like i 'm having a seizure or something
1: (laughs) actually in 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 some instances that's the best form of dance gets the most notice
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah it'll do that sure so you have that absolutely correct
1: so back in that that pre-family performance time Mm -hmm. what was your best performance and your worst performance if you can recall
2: oh wow if i had to think about it um best performance would have been a time that my partner Steve and I played a concert at uh, Prince George's Community College. We opened for a guy by the name of Steve Smullian. Uh, Steve was a Gordon Lightfoot sound alike, and um, I don't know exactly how we got into that job, but I was like, yeah, let's do it. So, you know, he had this uh, gym full of people, and, um, we went out there that, and that was also the mer- most nervous I have ever been. I was, uh, in the bathroom throwing up lunch before we went on, but went on, we had a, we had a good set. Uh, probably the worst, God, a lot of the early coffee houses that I went to, uh, or open mics. That I went to um, actually, and it, probably the worst performance was well after being married, uh, I went up to um, uh, the winery, and uh, uh, at the time, Scott Barrett was doing uh, open mics there, and I went on and played and i that summer, I was very focused because. I wanted to be the guy that got a gig after the end of the summer you know, that was picked out of all the people performing at the the mic and uh, at Elk Run there. And it turned out I wasn't picked and I asked him why and he told me, he said, uh, well, really, number one, I don't know if you have enough material and number two, your voice is kind of weak and this is very soon after I came back to playing. And let me tell you, you talk about being motivated at that point. I was motivated. And years later, Scott had a uh, CD party for a CD he had put out. And I was talking to him. I said, you know, you realize that you're the one that got me to this point. He didn't even remember having that talk. And I said, but that's what got me started going in the right direction he said okay (laughs) you know but he was surprised
1: so what did you do to make the change or to improve
2: uh played a lot and went out and probably uh people that might have heard me at a open mic or something like that probably weren't all that impressed at the time but I got stronger, I got more comfortable, because when I first started going back out again, I was definitely a nervous Nelly. But now, uh, being on stage is very comfortable. It really is. Uh, being able to, uh, to have you get me in over at uh, Frederick Coffee Company was a big thing, because that is just such a comfortable venue uh, to go play in. You know, uh, and that's, I got more and more comfortable with it. And, uh, I got to tell my stories, which are a big thing for me, wanting to be like John, you know? And, uh, so I got to work on my stories still doesn't get any better than that.
1: Now, I'm just curious. Did John Prine ever hear you?
2: Oh, no, no way. <laughs> Wouldn't that have been I fun? I would have loved, I wanted to meet him so badly and a lot of times he would have intermission at his shows, but there were so many people waiting to meet him and shake his hand and talk to him. Just never got the opportunity. I even talked about going on uh, uh, the, one of the blues cruise things that uh, he was part of, but um, never did get to do it.
1: So what was the defining moment or period of time as you became Empty Nester, or mm-hmm. one one half of the Empty Nester couple, that got you to dust off the guitar and start doing music again?
2: Well, to be honest with you, uh, I was getting bored. And I told Gene, I said, you know, I really would like to play again. Um, of course, I had no equipment, had nothing to go out and play with. So she said, "Well, look, you know, we don't have the kids at home anymore. Uh, we have the time. You have, we have the money. Go buy something." So I bought the uh, Gibson Heritage that uh, I love so much off of uh, eBay. Sight, you know, basically sight unseen. Had never played it. Uh, partly because that was my main guitar when I was young, when I was in high school.
1: Oh, so you uh, had I a had, you had a Gibson Heritage when you were playing coffee houses and things?
2: Yes, I did. Yeah. I, I bought that while I was working for Rosso Brothers music. I got it um wholesale and uh and I got it cheap because a lot of those heritage models had a problem with the finish checking, starting to look like alligator skin. Mm-hmm. And I didn't care. All I cared was what it sound sounded like, you know, what it felt like when I played it. So I bought that, and uh, and again, when I got to the other end here, uh, that's first thing I went looking for because I knew what it was. Um, you, I don't think you'd ever find me buying a new guitar. To be honest, I'm strictly vintage. <laughs>
1: I think both you and I at our age we could we we fit into that vintage category personally,
2: well, that's true, yeah, that's very true
1: now was the heritage you purchased at that music store was that your first guitar?
2: No, it wasn't uh my mom uh once she figured out that I was truly inst- uh interested because I had you know gotten this cheapy i mean it was bad uh guitar to start learning on um She went to uh, Woolworths and bought me a $29 uh, F-hole guitar with a pickup on it, and that's what I played for a while, and then I started horse trading. Uh, I took that guitar and traded up a little bit and took that guitar and traded for a a Greco 12-string double cutaway F-hole, which was a walnut body and a maple neck, And from there, I just, you know, through the years, I bought different guitars. I mean, at one point when I was working for Rosso brothers, uh, I had my heritage. I had a Gretsch, uh, country Gentleman. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I had, uh, an epiphone, uh, Texan that I had taken on trade at Rosso brothers and, um, messed with that. It was a, horrid looking thing but it played really well and of course my epiphone five string banjo and an epiphone classical model so i had a whole stable more or less but they and i kind of parted ways when i was a young married because i wasn't the best at the world uh of using and maintaining money (laughs) so they had to go to uh to other people so that I could, uh, keep my household going.
1: Now, I did not know that you had played the banjo at one point.
2: Yeah, actually, um, when I was working for Rosso brothers, there was a guy there by the name of Rocky Davis, who was, uh, an incredible banjo player. He was classically trained at, um, our music school here in Baltimore, uh, I've lost the name at the moment. But at any rate, he auditioned to go there uh, on his banjo and he learned to play classical guitar there. And he's the one that taught me I learned by rote. He would uh play some riffs and I would practice those for a week and then come back and he show me another riff and you know <laughs> that's that's how I learned to play five-string banjo.
1: Now, when was the last time you played five-string banjo?
2: Oh, good Lord. Uh, easily 20-plus years since I've touched uh, a, a banjo to actually play it. I'm, I'm not sure I could anymore with my hands like they are.
1: Well, the uh, not as easy to sing to a banjo as it is to a guitar.
2: Well, no, but the the advantage, number one, was Uh, the fact that you can't, it's almost impossible to get a sad song out of the banjo, (laughs) number one. Uh, Number two, back early on when I learned to play and before I got married, it it was great. I'd go to uh, the uh, Laurel Dam with a couple of friends and a bottle of Lancers and a round of Gouda cheese and we'd sit there and play and attract all kinds of ladies.
1: <laughs> so that's the second time you've mentioned girls or women in uh, in relation to playing music.
2: Oh yeah, it was my original uh, reason for for playing, to be honest.
1: Actually, you and many of the rest of us.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I would think so. Although some of them won't admit to it.
1: <laughs> I can't say from my own perspective if it was always successful or not, but at least I I thought it was.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
1: Now, do you prefer, or do you have? Let's put it this way: Do you have more fun playing solo or playing in an ensemble?
2: Um, got to be honest. Nowadays, I probably enjoy having. Uh, one or two people with me. Um, it lets me concentrate on singing and the lyrics, number one, and it makes the sound better, number two. Because um, I was—I've never been what you would call a uh, great guitar player. Certainly not a shredder. Uh, I stayed a basic chords, and uh, having somebody that can play a lead and maybe sing harmony now and then is real nice. And having, uh, my buddy Wisconsin Bob with me is always good. Cause he's a great straight man. Mm-hmm. And to... I can, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say he's, he's, he is, he's a straight, but he's also very quiet on stage. Yeah. Verbally.
2: Yes, he and is. A... Unless you see him when he's at his moments and he's, really getting down and his whole body just goes all kinds of crazy and he is just and he's just tearing it up and i tell people i say you know before he cut his hair uh you could have put a picture of him and mr natural right next to one another and you wouldn't have been able to tell who is who
1: now he seems to have been in the last say eight years or so six or eight years your most consistent mm-hmm performer with you in a duo situation.
2: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, how
1: did you meet Bob?
2: Uh, Well, we met at a uh, open mic uh, over in Ellicott City, uh, over at the, uh, uh, doggone it, I'm having a name problem today. Anyway, the place is closed now because the people that owned it decided to do some upgrades to the place and... Didn't pull a building permit. But at any rate, that's where we met. Basically, I was playing solo. And, uh, you know, he asked if he could play with me. I said, sure, why not? So um, he started playing with me. And more and more, every time I would come over, he was there. And we'd play together. And he got to know uh, a lot of my material and how I perform. And, um, then we started gigging, you know, we go out and do Elk Run. Of course, we've done, uh, Linganore. We've done Red Shedman. We've done, um, the coffee company and first Saturdays and all that stuff. I mean, you know, Brewers Alley, which was one of them really, I loved playing in there. It's such a great place. like
1: Uh, Like a mini concert.
2: Yeah, I had a great time.
1: I mean, how uh, often do you get a chance, or do we get a chance to perform to an audience who's quiet and actually listening?
2: Oh yeah, well yeah, because if you go to, um, for instance, an open mic, most open mics are in bars, so you've got to compete with the bar crowd um, and people trying to get to know one another. So the question often becomes. Can you get enough attention from those people that it gets quiet? I've found that uh, in a lot of cases, actually, I do manage to do that. Crowds get quiet, and I do notice that because they're listening, and you can tell they're listening, and that there's no more fun than that. I mean,
1: Now, do you attribute that to the songs you're singing or your style or both?
2: Um, I would say truly both um, folks just – well, I also liken it to the Jim Neighbors effect, if you've heard that before. Uh, I mean, think about Jim Neighbors' appearance, Yeah. and then think about the voice that used to come out of that face. And people would go, oh my God, I didn't know he could sing. Well, sometimes I think that's the reaction I get when I go to a open mic or somewhere I haven't been. Particularly, they're like, "Whoa, wait a minute, <laughs> let me listen to this." So, uh, but I, I chuckle at that. I enjoy that.
1: Well, you mentioned that you're not that good of a guitar player.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty basic. You know, I can count to four. And, uh, <laughs> well, you're you know, one,
1: you're one number better than I am.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I uh but you know, I'm not uh a, a great player. I mean, I was particularly in my younger years I was decent. I could do a lot of things to cover the fact that I didn't play lead and that sort of thing. But um no, not a great guitar player.
1: Well, in my opinion, having seen you many times and heard you many times live and then also listening to the CD and I must admit that when I first received the CD, and I actually have an autographed copy. I don't know how many of yeah. those exist in the world, but I have an autographed copy by D.L. Weiner. Is preparing for this chat with you, I listened mm-hmm. to, the, to the songs, deciding which, one, which song I was going to use to lead into the show and which song I was going to use as the outro. And right. I was struck by how good of a rhythm guitar player you are.
2: Well, I will say this. I am steady. Uh, back when I got uh, drawn into the part-time band, our lead guitar player was a guy by the name of Dave Griffith. And he he was a pretty good player. He was also very popular with the ladies because he looked like Chuck Norris.
0: Uh-huh. Uh,
2: and uh, we did a, a private party in somebody's house in the, middle of the woods somewhere, and we played, and we played, and we played. And it must have been close to 3 in the morning. Of course, I had had a few, and I was leaning up on the wall behind uh, one of the speakers of our PA system, and Dave came over and asked me, he says, are, are you all right? I said, yeah, Griff, I'm fine. Just go ahead. I'll be there when the time comes. He says, okay, we're going to do Already Gone. I said, got it. I'll be there. Well, you know how that song opens. It Mm -hmm. opens with just the lead guitar. He finished the opening, and I'm there playing and singing, and he just stands there and looks at me like, you know, I don't believe this. I said, will you play the damn song? (laughs) (laughs) Which he did, and he told me after that night, he said, I will never, ever doubt you again. Ever because it, you know, if I was playing, uh, I wanted to be on time on cue, and um, I, I always do my best to do that.
1: Now, do you pattern your, your, ta- your guitar style after anybody?
2: No, not really, because I can't imagine anybody wanting to play the way I do, <laughs> <laughs> but you Never know, really thought about that.
1: Well, the reason I ask that is because you're so much of a fan, and you're probably the biggest fan of John Prine of, of all the people who I know. I mean, um, I know quite a few people who love John Prine, but you're probably his biggest yeah. fan of the group that I know, and I wasn't sure if maybe you patterned your guitar playing after his style. But your style is a little smoother, I think.
2: Um, Maybe a little bit smoother, but he can still play a few more chords than I can. But the greatest thing I, I ever heard from him, uh, we were seeing him down in uh, that place in Montgomery County. It's Crystal something or other. And he's on stage and he's got his capo out and he's putting it on. And he told the audience, the capo is the greatest invention known to man because otherwise I'd always be playing in the key of G. <laughs> and I'm like, there you go that 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 absolutely describes it, I mean, you know uh th- that's a great thing that well, way I don't have to transpose. I just move the move the capo to where I'm comfortable and have at it
1: well, and there's nothing better than a full g g chord,
2: oh yeah, I think so
1: I mean, I love e and I love C and D and all those things, but the g chord, mm-hmm. if I'm trying a guitar for the very first time say at a music mm-hmm. shop the first chord i play is a g
2: oh okay you weren't one of those guys that uh used to do stairway to heaven no to the point where i wanted to <laughs> throttle them oh my god they come in and say hey can i try this guitar and first thing they do is stairway to heaven and i'm like play the guitar man Don't you know <laughs> but uh that, that's what a lot of them would do
1: now the second chord i play after i've done the g and d and, and that is to do the beginning of the song beginnings by uh chicago mm-hmm. just because i figure if the guitar sounds really good with a g chord and the basic 3 or 4 down on the the first and second and third fret i want to see mm-hmm. how well it how nicely it sounds up at the 12th and 14th fret
2: right very good point very so, good point
1: so how many gibson heritages do you own currently
2: just the one. Just the one. And I have I have a uh, 1974 Gibson Gospel because I always liked uh, that real bright sound of maple, mm-hmm. and the Gospel is maple rims and back with a with a uh, shaped back on it to increase the output, and uh, it's a fun guitar to play. But my mainstay definitely is my heritage
1: now does your current heritage and it's going to be a little difficult for you to um, make this decision because there was so much time that went by Mm -hmm. between them does the one you own now equate or sound better or sound worse than the one you had way back when
2: Um, pretty close to the one I had back then Uh, the, the one I have now is a little newer that uh, what i bought was a 1970 model what i originally had was a 66 um and i think that might have been a little deeper than this one um which is a sound that i i like a lot uh but now and then i have to get away from it which is why i have the gospel but uh that that model guitar I I mean, you know, it was originally built to compete with Martin D thirty fives. And I think it certainly has always done that for me. You know, that Martin guys say, Oh my God. You know, everybody that's ever laid a hand on one of my heritage cars, either one that I've owned in my lifetime, is like, Would you sell this? Hell no. <laughs> I won't <laughs> sell that. Uh in fact for years I wouldn't let anybody touch my guitar, much less play it. But uh one time I was down in uh the Tampa Tampa area playing at a place called the Green Door Brewery, and you could see the Tampa Bay Rays stadium from there, and uh I let their host try my guitar and he didn't want to give it back. I'm like, sorry, man, it's even yeah. with me. He <laughs> yeah. really, he loved it. He put his hands on it, just fell in love with it.
1: Well, I do remember the, the better folk performers, because I grew up in kind of the folk scene. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I wanted to be as good as the Beatles and part of a, a band, but you couldn't do that as a solo guitar player. So it was more like the right. folk pop. But yeah. the better performers who I ran across when they'd have like little mini concerts at the church youth group where they'd bring in a touring artist that played a Gibson guitar. Mm -hmm. I didn't see too many.
2: Yeah. I've always been a Gibson guy from the day I started selling them for 11. uh, I, I just, you know, for me, you know, there's just nothing else like a Gibson's Martins are, are nice. um, But, I still think my heritage is a, is a better guitar. Uh, they're both well-built, um, particularly the older ones, you know. Uh, and one of the nice things that I tell people, said, so stop and think about this. The wood that's in a Gibson or a Martin from that era of time was old then. Right. Now it's got another 60 years on it if it was built, you know, in 1960 or 1970, it's got 50 more years on it. So it it surely should sound good. You know, that that's my one uh, thing with some of the Taylor guitars. I, I always tend to think they sound a little thin, uh, which is probably why they put the type of electronics on them that they do, so that they can make it sound a little beefier
1: now when you worked at the store or maybe Mm -hmm. or maybe since did you ever try or play a gibson j45
2: uh yes i did in fact uh i (laughs) it's funny uh the j45 my my only problem with that was the neck was oddly shaped for me the j45 is a nice model it really is And believe it or not, I played a 1940 J45 over in Catonsville at Appalachian Bluegrass. The guy, you know, I was uh, looking for a guitar at the time, and he said, well, let me show you this. He says, I'm not going to sell it, but let me show you this. And he let me sit down and play it, and I was like, holy cow. I mean, it was really nice. And the difference for me between the J 45 and the heritage is the wood because the J 45 was basically mahogany where the heritage is Rosewood.
1: A little deeper sound.
2: Yeah. I've always thought so.
1: And actually a better wood combination for singing.
2: Um, I don't know if it's that, but I know I just love the tones that come out of, uh, out of a heritage and the J 45 is close, but I always saw the J 45 as more of, um, I saw a lot of bluegrass guys mm-hmm. that I knew that played J 45s. Um, and they loved them. Yeah. You know, just a, I think just a difference in preference.
1: Now you, your main musical influence and your hero, John Prine did you play many Bob Dylan songs?
2: Uh, honestly, no. Was no hit... the Is... only one? The only one I can think of. Um, geez, no, really not. <laughs> no, I was never a big Dylan guy.
1: Now, who would have been your number two musical influence, if you ha- or not necessarily influence, but the person who you liked, but behind John Prine? I know he back, was your number one.
2: Back when I was young. Uh, probably Tom Rush.
1: Oh, me And too. again,
2: because he has a, he has a way with telling a story in his music and still does, you know, things like the memory song, you know, where it's a great he gets song. To, the end, yeah, he get to the end and he can't find his cell phone. So, uh, you know, that type of thing. And, and, uh, if I, if I had a boat,
0: mm-hmm. which I
2: got reintroduced to when, um, uh when it was redone uh by love it love it yeah for the end of his shows and I started doing it and Gene was never a favorite of that song but I, I just thought it was one of one real cute song.
1: It is a cute you know? song. Uh
2: but uh yeah I guess Tom Rush would have been a close second and I liked uh listening to uh Peter, Paul and Mary, believe it or not, which, uh, doesn't come anywhere near the way, uh, the stuff that I actually do. Um, but they, they were always nice to listen to. I've always enjoyed harmonies. I mean, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash are the epitome. They are. I mean, they, it, it doesn't get better than that for close harmonies. It really, really doesn't. And, uh, they, they were amazing. I went nuts when they first hit the scene.
1: Now, you mentioned Tom Rush, and if I'm yeah. not mistaken, I think, and I did get to see Tom Rush twice. I've, I've seen him three times, actually. The first two times were back in the 1970s. The last time was about <laughs> a year and a half ago down in the, the Eastern Shore. But back in the 1970s, I think his main guitar was an Epiphone Texan, which yep. is what you also had.
2: Yeah, and he still... Is using an Epiphone, I think. Mm-hmm. It may be the same one, but yeah, he still plays Epiphone.
1: And and didn't Paul McCartney use an Epiphone Texan for yesterday? Yes. So you're yeah. you're right there with two famous people.
2: <laughs> yeah, kinda. <laughs> uh, at least for a time, I was. Yeah. So that, until I, you know, had to let it go.
1: So what's, are you still playing? How And if you are, how often do you play? Do you just pick it up or what do you do?
2: Well, no, in fact, uh, I took some time off because I was having hand issues, which I think are more under control now. So I'm actually ready to go back out and start playing um, once we get to that point uh, in our lives where we can go out again. Yeah, That's true. Yeah. Yeah, because I've been, you know, other than that, I've been going to a couple of different uh, open mics so that I could play. And sometimes I would think, hey, that was, I had a good set. And sometimes I thought I was horrible, but my wife tells me, no, you weren't. So I have to take her word for it. Uh, whether I always want to or not, I've always been, my worst critic.
1: Well, and and I've discovered that a love close loved one, especially a spouse, may be the toughest critic, but also the most honest.
2: Well, uh, yeah, but it's always and, and like I say, being the way I am, it's it's always tough for me to just say, "Well, thank you," but when other folks come up and say, "Hey, that was a killer set," or I love this song or that sort of thing, um, you know, then then I know I'm, I'm okay. I had a, you know, I had a good set or I'm still doing well.
1: Now, when you go out to do an open mic or a songwriter yeah. showcase, whatever, well, let's just say open mic because you could do originals or cover songs in an open mic. Right. If you yep. only have three songs, what are the three songs you're going to choose to perform?
2: Um, usually, I'll do at least one of mine and um, then a couple of uh, generally a couple of John Prine tunes like Far From Me or Everybody or uh, you know that type of thing Um, and if I were you know sometimes I'll of course I'll do uh, Blaze of Glory which is one of my fun tunes um, probably closer to John Prime than anything else I've ever written, uh, so and people generally get get a kick out of that. But uh, that if I were going to do three, that's probably where I'd be.
1: So tell the story, or let the listeners know how the song "Blaze of Glory" came about.
2: Uh, well, that came from a spirited discussion in the car between Gene and I um, we were talking about yeah. I I have a she said I had a penchant for writing about uh, the end of life and death and dying you know things like whistling past the graveyard and um, we went back and forth back and forth I said well when I go I am not going quietly I'm going to go kicking, scratching, cussing pissing people off just like I always have. I'll go out in a blaze of glory. And just like in the cartoons, that little light bulb popped up over my head. And I said, that's a song. So that's where that came from.
1: Now, how long did it take from the time you had that little light bulb moment until you actually wrote the song?
2: Uh, In all honesty, a couple, three months, (laughs) easily. I mean, writing for me... Uh, I've always said this is a love-hate relationship. Um, because I am so picky about my lyrics. They're, they're, they're never thrown together the way I think some people do. Uh, I'm very choosy about how my lyrics come out because I want somebody to get something out of the song. So with a song being a a living thing it does change as you do it more and it'll never come out the same twice but uh as long as it comes out good twice that's a good thing and like somebody said and actually there's a number of people that have said it when you write a song and you have to like it first because if everybody else does and they ask you to play it a lot, as some folks do about uh, k Cairo and Cakes or the Pancake song. Same thing. Uh, you have to you have to like it because if you don't like it, you're not going to like to play it, well, and they're that, not going to like to hear it.
1: That brings up the Pancake song. Yeah, the uh, the late Paul Penwell. Yes, and his alternate ego Xavier World. You're. Yeah. Your, K Rowan Pancakes or what we we all refer to as the pancake song was his favorite song.
2: Yes. Yes, it was. That's what he said. And you know, he called the first time I met him uh at the the coffee company there, he said, You're the pancake guy, right? <laughs> and, and I'm like, Yeah, because he had come over to ask if he could uh take up a spot at the table. And I said, Sure, and we got to talking and I said, Yeah, that's that's me," he says. "I love that song. Every time I hear it, I got to go have pancakes."
1: Now, how did you there. come about writing that song? I'm curious.
2: Uh, again, slip of paper from the uh, from over in Town that said "Tears in My Pancakes." That's where it started, and I wrote that. That's probably one of the shorter uh, time frames that I've ever written a song in. It took me just over a month, so I didn't get to perform it when I was supposed to, uh, to be in competition with the other stuff for that particular idea. But I didn't care, because it's, it's a fun song. Oh, it, it's a really nice song.
1: It always gets a terrific response from the audience.
2: Yes, it does. It seems, really, that it does. In fact, uh, if, if we ever get all this stuff lifted so that I can... Start traveling again. Um, I have plans to do another CD, and obviously that will be on it.
1: Well, I'm kind of curious that it's not on the Highway Song CD, or was that pretty much because you only had time for five, or you only wanted to put out five, and that just didn't? Well, make the I cut? only
2: wanted to put out five, and at the time I had already planned parts of the second CD. And k and Cakes was on it. And one of the reasons uh, I did it that way was I already had my cover art picked out for the CD, which was a picture from a 1940 or 41 uh,
0: cookbook for
2: k Ah, syrup. Oh. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, it, it was... Uh, I really hadn't come up with a with a set title. Um, the original was going to be Cairo uh, and Cakes and other songs of love lost, um, but now I have no idea what the title would be. But I still want to use that picture for the uh, CD.
1: Well, it's interesting when you talk about how quickly or slowly, depending on how you describe the time frame. That it takes you to write a song. It takes me a long time. I have, I think, I've only done one song that was less than, say, a two-week period. Most of them are many, many months. But in preparation yeah. for this um, discussion, because I was never exposed to John Prine uh, mm-hmm. for, for whatever reason, he just wasn't in my musical atmosphere or surrounding me until right. I started doing the music here in the Frederick area and people started kept talking about this John Prine guy and I'd heard his name so anyway earlier today I thought you know I don't know a whole lot about John Prine and I and you know it's very sad that we lost a, a musical icon I figured yes, there, indeed. there must be some interview somewhere that I can get a feel for who he was and mm-hmm. I found an interview uh, it was on Nashville TV network I don't know what the title of the show was but the Artist Bobby Bear was the interviewer, and he had Mm -hmm. John Prine and Ramblin' Jack Elliott on the show.
2: Oh, okay.
1: 75% of the show was John Prine. And Bobby Bear, they were talking about lyrics and and songwriting. Bobby Bear said, where do you find the best place to write your songs? And John Prine hesitated for a second. He says, if I find it, I'm going to move there. So that's exactly you, right. You and I are not alone in that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, you know, um like I say it's always it's always a struggle for me. Um once I have an idea, it gets easier. Uh I went I went to a uh a, a meetup thing uh that used to go on over in Uh, Towson over on Charles Street uh, run by a lady from uh, actually she lived in New York and she would come down here uh, once a month for these uh, meetups and she's a writer herself of uh, she has a musical partner they wrote for um, Lena Horne on Broadway that he writes for Disney and a whole bunch of other stuff. And she's written numerous books. So I went there and I got some good ideas out of there. Uh, Probably one of my uh, odd ideas was um, we were supposed to write a song that we could, that if we had the opportunity, we could present to our musical hero um, to pitch the song to be recorded, and we had also had a uh, assignment that uh, we were supposed to write a song with something that you wouldn't normally see in a song lyric-wise, like directions or instructions or something like that. So out of those two things came a song called Wash, Rinse, and Repeat. Uh, which were the most ubiquitous, uh, <laughs> instructions that I could possibly think of because it's on every shampoo bottle ever made.
1: That's true. That's true.
2: And, uh, so, uh, the, the, the song was something I could, uh, present that I would feel comfortable presenting to John to hear. And it met the, uh, thing of having, uh, the, uh, instructions or directions and I that one that one went that's the quickest song I ever wrote by the time I got back from the meetup that night I knew what I was gonna do uh, and had the first verse done in my head already so it didn't take very long to write maybe about two weeks and it's a it's a cute little song
1: Well, I look forward to hearing that, and I look forward to hearing you again live whenever we're allowed to uh, get back out and and the venues start opening up so that we can have live music again and we can move around socially again. But I have had a wonderful time chatting with you. It's so good to catch up and learn about you because I've never been able to have more than a two-minute conversation with you in all the years I've known you.
2: Yeah, that's true, and I really appreciate this. Uh, I've, I've enjoyed myself thoroughly.
1: Well, I think you'll be pleas- hopefully pleasantly surprised when you hear this online. Um, I've had a great time, and I so appreciate it. I, I want you to tell Jeannie I said hi. And if I recall, I she likes to go by the name Jean, not Jeannie, but you you prefer Jeannie, and so do
0: I.
2: No, the other way around. Oh, okay. She likes to go by Jeannie, but like I say, and like I tell people when I perform the song for Jean. Jean is what's on her birth certificate and her driver's license. And that's (laughs) pretty much what I've always called her. I'll call her Jeannie every now and then, but uh, mostly I call her Jean.
1: Well, please tell Jeannie that Todd says hello, and I wish her the best, and I wish you the best. And thanks again, Dave, for for spending the hour with me.
2: I appreciate it.
1: All right. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I hope to talk with you soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Well, that was Dave Weiner and uh, discussing his musical journey and also songs from his Highway Song CD that's titled Highway Song, D.L. Weiner. And you know, I forgot to ask him what the L stands for. I'll have to do that in the next conversation. And thank you again for listening. And we're going to leave the show with another of the songs. Actually, it's the title, the lead song on the CD. And he and I discussed it towards the end of the interview. It's called Blaze of Glory.
0: Gray Rocker said, Well, I'm too old to leave a good looking corpse. I'm too young for Medicare. I go out in a blaze of glory. I'm too young for a rocking chair. I go out. the teachers in his school. Well, he was widely known as the old class clown after breaking all the rules. But he told all his little school chums, I'm going to be a big man someday. And as they drug him down my hallway, all his friends could hear him say, I go out in a place. The old grey rocker said, well I'm too old to leave a good looking cop I'm too young for Medicare, I go out in a place of glory, I'm too young for a rocking chair.
1: The Wispy Mop Music Acoustic Radio Podcast Series is produced by Todd C. Walker at the Wispy Mop Music Studio in Frederick, Maryland. All music on the podcast is played by permission from the artist. If you're enjoying the series, please feel free to share the link, wispymopmusic.podbean.com. And podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Or you can find the show on either iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.
0: Do old to leave a good-looking course to young for Medicare? This is what he'll do, do You go out in a place of glory The old gray robber said Oh, I'm too old to leave a good-looking corpse I'm too young for Medicare I go out in a place of glory I'm too young for a